I am excited to be here. Um, you know, Danny told you that Neil and Jessica and family were just trying to get away, but uh, the real story is that they're getting matching mullets with uh, racing stripes, and they're getting airbrushed t-shirts that say Neil and Jess forever. So that's the real story about where they are. Uh, they went up to Pigeon Forge just to get that done. Because you remember last time I spoke, um, they were out getting matching back tattoos with the North Wahala logo. Remember that? So, uh, so this time they're getting matching mullets. So if you get a chance, ask them about that uh, next time you see them. But um, anyway, so I'm excited to be up here, uh, excited for the opportunity. The best part about Pastor not being here is I get to say whatever I want, so, and he can't come up here and uh, rip me off the stage. So, uh, with that being said, though, um, I just want to say that I love teaching Scripture. I love teaching Scripture. I love the fact that you've chosen to be here, that you would just even put yourself under the teaching of the Scriptures, like under the teaching of the Gospel, um, and I feel a privilege just to be up here. I, I really can't tell you that enough. Um, I've spent a long time getting ready for this message, um, and this is one of those messages I didn't even realize I was getting prepared for um, just because, and, and I'll elaborate on that a little bit. I didn't realize I was getting prepared for this message um, all along the way, but I'm so excited about this one, and I'm excited that you're here. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this night, for this opportunity to be here. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the church. We thank you for a body of believers that we can be a part of. What a privilege, Lord. What an honor. Um, thank you for the scriptures and what it teaches us and the opportunity to expose it, to unpack it, to further define it. Not that it needs further definition, Lord, but that we can even go into it and, and see how it all lays together in this beautiful tapestry um, that you orchestrated for us. And Lord, I pray that you'll um, be with people that can't be here tonight for whatever reason. So Lord, if uh, uh, technology willing that we can put this message um, on the internet and someone can listen to it, Lord, I pray that they will be blessed by it, whether they're here tonight hearing it live or they'll hear it later um, after it's recorded, such that um, or what, I, what I say is pleasing to you, and I say no more or no less than what is needed to accomplish your mission. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So, as usual, I'm going to do things a little bit backwards. So, the scripture that we're going to go to, I'm actually going to save that until the very end. That's actually going to be the last thing. So you have plenty of time to turn Acts chapter 6, but I promise you it's not until the very end that we're actually even going to go to the Scriptures and look at that, because it's going to take me a little while to kind of set the stage and kind of unpack um, all of these thoughts. So have you ever had someone tell you what you should do? Have you ever had someone tell you what you should do? Maybe this is your brother-in-law at Christmas who tells you what car or truck you should have bought, Right? Or maybe this is a parent telling you who you should have gone out with. I would say that none of us you know, are at a shortage or none of us have, in our lives have been at a shortage for people telling us you know, what we should uh, do. Maybe it's your coworker like, telling you what you, should have, what you should have told the boss man or what you should tell the boss man. Right? We're, we have those people in our lives. In fact, uh, earlier today, this afternoon, we had our school of ministry across the street. And one of the things that, that I shared with everyone is that leaders are typically not at a, at a shortage of people telling them what they should do. In fact, if I could be so bold as to challenge each of you, um, Pastor Nolan does not need someone else to tell him what he should do or tell him what this church should do. There are plenty of those people that do that anyway, right? Um, he already knows probably what needs to be done or what should be done. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of, well, you should have, or this, well, you know what needs to be done. Well, probably somebody should. If you've ever been on the receiving end, you know that that's exhausting. So if I could just challenge you just a little bit as a congregation, the next time you feel yourself saying, wanting to tell pastor what should be done, um, and, and this, is one of my, this is one of my phrases I love to teach people. If you, if you want to change the world, if you want to change anything, be a problem fixer, don't be a problem finder. Anybody can find a problem, but the people who change the world are those who fix them, right? 
So my, my point in setting all that up is to understand that you have been on the receiving end, I have been on the receiving end, we have been on the receiving end of someone telling us what you should do. And the title of my message tonight is Your Calling from Preparation to Revelation. And so your calling, if you've ever experienced your calling, and I want to make sure you understand, when I say, when I use the phrase your calling, your calling, that two-word phrase is kind of a churchy word um, that we throw around, that we tell people, that we give to people, uh, we teach on it because it is in the Scriptures, and your calling is just the idea that you have a job or a function or a purpose in the kingdom, right? And I think sometimes we tell somebody what they should do when it's actually their calling. We're guilty sometimes of telling them, what you, what you should do is you should be a preacher, or what you should do is you should teach Sunday school, or what you should do is you should work in the nursery, right? And what happens is when it, when it comes to your calling, um, there's, there's a couple of ways that we kind of treat your calling in the church world. Um, usually, maybe it starts out with a youth camp and you're there, and you're 10 years old, or you're 12 years old at youth camp, and someone comes along, and they say, God's got a calling on your life, right? Or you, you've got a calling on your life, and someone tells you that. Maybe they smack you in the forehead with a Bible, and then they walk away. Maybe they'll hit you with a Jeremiah bomb. Do you know what a Jeremiah bomb is? A Jeremiah bomb is where someone says, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans, you know, and they, and they kind of throw that at you, and they say, God's got a calling for you life. And then what do they do? They turn, and they walk away. And they leave you with this this phrase, this idea, or this understanding, you've got a function in the kingdom. Good luck, and that's it. Sometimes that's kind of the end of the message. Sometimes they say, you should do this. And I, th I think we need to, uh, what I want to do is I want to kind of step back from that or kind of unpack that a little bit um, and, and see how it manifests itself um, in our lives. Sometimes we use the phrase, God's perfect will. Right? Sometimes we use that phrase and say, well, God's perfect will is this, and you should be operating in God's perfect will, and until you're walking in God's perfect will, is this why Neil didn't use this this morning? Pastor didn't, Pastor didn't use this this morning, did he? And it could be because of this right here. Let's see if we can get this working. No? What's the problem here? It's not God's perfect will for me to use this microphone tonight. Hmm, I don't think that's going to work. Oh, it broke. Like I said, it's... All right. Last try, and if that doesn't work, then I'll abandon it, and I'll go to this guy. But if you haven't learned, I need my hands when I speak, so i got to have the headset. But anyway... You know, like I said, sometimes there's this phrase, God's perfect will, God's perfect will. And, but the problem is, sometimes we don't further define that. And then we're left with, this, we're left with more questions than we are answers. In fact, all we've done is we've, we've created an answer, but then it just generates more questions. Well, what is God's perfect will? Well, how do I know if I'm walking in His perfect will? Well, how do I know if I'm in my calling? Right? And it actually generates more questions. And I can assure you this, the nature of God is to not create confusion. He does not want you to be asking more confusing questions and carrying more burdens. That's not in his nature. The scriptures are very clear about that, right? And so, in fact, last year I was at a, at a, at a big church Christian conference uh, down in Atlanta called Catalyst, and a bunch of speakers about church growth and about church development and about church leadership. And there's a bunch of vendors there. You know, they have books and they have materials and they have resources. And one of the things, one of the booths that I saw there was really fascinating. It's a booth of a company to help you find your calling. In fact, what it is is you give them money and then you take some type of like personality test or some test or whatever, you answer a bunch of questions and at the end of it, they print out this thing that says, here's your calling. And they actually tell you, this is your calling. Which is really fascinating, right? Because it, like I said, that could create a lot more anxiety and stress and questions than it could actually end up answering. Right? Because like I said, you leave these these, these conversations, or, or if this is the altar call at youth camp or whatever, you leave there with this feeling of like, okay, so what is my calling? And then you're scratching your head, and then you're frustrated, and then you're kind of figuring out like, what's next? I, I think our calling, if we unpack the scriptures, is just a little bit deeper than that. 
that are calling, just a little bit deeper than that, a little bit deeper than a printed out piece of paper, a receipt that says, you are to do this. I think it's just a little bit deeper than that. You know, a lot of times, if we're going to look at your calling or if someone is going to speak or teach on your calling, they go to King David. King David is kind of like the classic example because King David as a young boy was anointed to be what? To be the king. So there's the idea is that, well, when you were 10, someone should have told you you were going to be an evangelist. And so at the age of 10, you knew you were going to be an evangelist. And now it's just set out on that journey until you become an evangelist. And so we use David as this model for your calling. But I think there's some challenges and I'm going to try to unpack some of those. Um, but if we go to the New Testament, if we look in Ephesians, there's talking about how there are some people set to be apostles and some people are you know, set to be uh, pastors and teachers and some people you know, are set for this and, and, and different reasons. So if we unpack some of the New Testament, we see that clearly that people have roles and positions and, and, and duties and, and specific places to operate in the kingdom. But yeah, and, and you could like go to Google. If you just go to Google and just type in, you know, scripture about your calling, you're going to get, you know, probably 20 or 30 references of, of, of scriptures that have the word calling in them. And, and, and they, they're all different sources, you know, different books of the Bible, and they all have different reader, writers, of course, and they all have different references and different contexts and stuff like that. And, and, and here's what I want you to understand about your calling. And this is, for some of you, this is something that you've battled with. This is something that you genuinely have, like, struggled with. You've thought about it a lot. You've been concerned about it. You've been confused about it. Um, you've been confused about your calling, and you, you've, you've researched it. You've listened to messages about it and stuff like that. Um, and here's what happens. And this idea of, of talking about your calling is that it manifests itself in our lives in a couple of different ways. And number one, uh, this idea of, I call it a spiritual soulmate. And what I mean by this is that I don't believe or I don't buy into the uh, Nicholas Sparks romantic comedy kind of a notion um, that everyone has a soulmate out there. The idea that there is one person in, in, in the creation of humanity that's supposed to be for me. I don't buy into that. And the reason why is because um, a couple of different reasons, and I think that that's what happens when we try to tell someone, you have... Uh, this calling, and, you, and, then, and then you leave them alone with that notion of, of your calling. Um, the, the, the spiritual soulmate that I call it is this idea that, well, if I'm in my calling, if I, if I am in my calling, I should be very satisfied. But if I'm not in my calling, maybe I'm not satisfied. And so the first idea of the soulmate is, well, I don't know if this is my soulmate. Maybe this isn't my soulmate. Maybe this isn't, you know, the person for me. And so this notion that we create by telling people that you have to find your soulmate, well, then, of course, my question is, is Terry my soulmate? Am I, am I supposed to be with her or not? Is there this fate or this destiny idea that I'm supposed to find my soulmate? Well, how do, my, how do I know my soulmate didn't live in China 50 years ago? Well, then I'm kind of in a bad way, right? Because I kind of missed that boat. So, so then, and I think what happens when it comes to our calling or our function in the kingdom is we're like, well, I don't really know if this is where I'm supposed to be. Is this where I'm supposed to serve? I'm not really sure. I mean, I feel satisfied by serving in the kingdom like this, but I, I don't know. I don't even know if I would experience more satisfaction if I moved on to another ministry or another position. And that's why I say that I think that sometimes this idea about your calling, it manifests itself in our lives as like this spiritual soulmate. The other thing that happens is when it comes to this, this idea about our soulmate, and finding that one calling, and that one calling is your perfect calling, and until you get there, is that then you start wondering about other options. So if I look at Terry and wonder if she's actually my soulmate, then, then what ends up happening is you get the over the, I call it the over the shoulder effect, where I'm looking over Terry's shoulder to wonder if there's another woman out there who has something a little bit better and something this and, and might fit a little bit better, and might, you know, she may, you know, whatever, and it might be something about her that I like a little bit better than Terry. I mean, think about this. If Neil Nolan obsesses over whether North Walhalla is his perfect will, his calling. If he obsesses over that all the time, do you know what he'll spend his time doing? Looking over the shoulder of all of us, wondering, is there another church out there that actually is his perfect calling? And he will miss the entire season of the time that he spends with us. Do you, do you, see, what I'm, do you see where I'm going with that? You see, why that's why, I, I, that's why I, I refer to it as this idea of the spiritual soulmate. Because if he's not careful, then he'll wonder, well, maybe I'm not supposed to be at North Walla. Maybe North Walla isn't where I get full satisfaction, you know, in my calling. Maybe that's not the perfect will of God. And then he's always wondering. And before you know it, his time at North Walla is gone. And he always wondered, was he supposed to be here? Was he not supposed to be here? 
Was there a better option out there? Was there more satisfaction somewhere else? And then we miss that entire season of ministry. I don't know if I'm supposed to be the Sunday school teacher at Northwell Hall. I don't know if I'm supposed to. Maybe that's not. Maybe that's not my perfect will because I get pretty frustrated at those kids every Sunday, and I'm not really sure. And if it's my perfect will, then I wouldn't get frustrated with those kids, right? If Terry was my soulmate, then I wouldn't get annoyed at the way she loads the dishwasher, right? Like, this is what happens, right? And then what ends up happening is it leads to this confusion, right? So then we're saying, well, I, I don't really know then. I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to be serving in this position. I'm not supposed to know. I don't know if I'm supposed to. There's more satisfaction here. There's other options out there. And then you're in confusion. Remember what I said. He's not the author of confusion, right? He is not trying to get you to play this, to, to work to put together this puzzle, right? You don't have 500 Lego pieces in front of you and you're just trying to build your calling and cross your fingers and hope maybe one day that you arrive at this perfect will of this calling. That's, I just don't think that it's in God's nature. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I definitely think that he has dedicated or, or, or people that, you know, are set apart for different purposes. And I understand that we're given specific skill sets. And some people are very, very good at, at relating uh, to people personally. And some people very good at administrative duties. Like, I get all of that. And that's clear in the New Testament. But um, if we're not careful, uh, then we just say, well, Michael, what's your calling? And why haven't you found it yet? And then we, we pin people down and we hand them this burden and we just expect them to carry it until they figure it out. Now, the, now the, another way that we kind of look at the, our calling and maybe the way sometimes it kind of manifests itself with this, this stress and anxiety in our life. So, so recently I was at the house, and I don't know if your house is, is like our house, but um, we just have stuff. We have more stuff than we need. Does anybody have more stuff than they actually need? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Your garage has stuff. One of your closets has just stuff. You just, I, just one of those things. It's just, I don't know. We're just, humans are good at collecting stuff. And so I was in the garage, and I was trying to make small piles out of bigger piles. And sure enough, I'm, I'm standing there, and I realized that there was um, so our, our daughter, uh, her stroller, so Anna, you know, because of her special needs, because of her disability, she has a very special type of a stroller. It's kind of her, her wheelchair, so to speak. It's very big, and it's very bulky, and it moves, it's, it migrates around. It goes into the car, then it comes out of the car, and it goes to that side of the garage, then it comes to this side of the garage, and it's in front of the stairs, then it's in front of the fridge, and it's back over here. And what I realized is that sometimes the frustration of clutter and stuff is that it needs to have a place for it to go, Right? If you want to not feel like you have a cluttered house or a cluttered space or whatever, you need to have a designated place to put that thing. If you don't have a designated place to put that thing, it always feels out of place. And I think sometimes that we treat our calling the same way. We tried our calling here and it didn't feel like it fit right. So then we're going to try our calling here and it feels like it didn't fit right. And then we try our calling over here and we feels like it didn't fit right. And that creates this sense of anxiety like I don't fit there and I don't fit there and I don't fit there. I'm not really sure what my calling is. Right? So not only is it this spiritual soulmate, but it's this idea of organization, and everything has its, has its set place in the kingdom. And until I find my set place in the kingdom, I'm lost. And I just don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair for us to have that mentality. Right? Because when you're here and you're working for the kingdom, and this is, this is what I say, I was going to save this for later, but i got to tell this to you now. If you are working for the kingdom, you are winning I'm going, to keep, I'm going to keep going. Then, then, then the, the final thing I think that I want to unpack about how your calling kind of manifests itself in our life is three areas, competition, comparison, and assumption. Now, competition, we see this with Saul, King Saul, the one who was king right before David, right? David had been anointed king already, and Saul knew it. And the, from the moment that David was anointed king and Saul found out, he lived in turmoil. He was constant. He was consumed by the fact that David was supposed to be the next king. And of course, Saul had made several attempts to kill David. In fact, he, pr he pretty much spent the rest of his life being consumed with the idea of killing off David so he wouldn't steal the throne. And so what ends up happening is, is that what we do with our calling, if we're looking at our calling, we end up trying to maybe compete with other people. And we say, well, they found their calling. Where's mine? 
right? Or if, so if you're, if, you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're in this area and you feel like that's your calling, you immediately start looking at the other people that are in that area and you're competing with them. Well, they have 500 in their church, so I'm going to go for 1,000. Can you imagine how exhausting it would be if Neil spent every day trying to be better than the 500-person church down the street? That would be exhausting, completely exhausting. And I think if we're not careful, when it comes to our calling, that we might fall into the same trap of competition. If it's not competition, sometimes it's comparison. Um, Let me just make sure you understand this. Here's what we do. We look at people who are at the podium or on the microphone or on the stage with, with, with more value. Hear, hear me on this. The person with the most volume does not have the most value. Okay? In fact, um, we're, we're guilty even like if, you, if you're a leader or you're a boss or something like that in the workplace. If you get one employee who's the loudmouth and says all, complains about all the things all the time that, that is going on in the work, you as a leader sometimes assume that that represents the entire, the entire you know, uh, workforce. You just assume that the loudest uh, equals the most. Well, I think in, a, in, a, in our own way what we do is we attach the most value to those who have the most value. Well, they're up in front, and they're on the screen, and they're on Facebook, and he's on YouTube, so therefore they must have the most value. But I can promise you, I can promise you, if you are working the parking lot at North Walhalla, you have value to the kingdom. That is a very important function. Do you know why that's a very important function? Because my seven-year-old daughter cannot cross the road by herself. I could shut the microphone off and we could be done right on that notion. Right? You literally physically make it possible for my family to attend church by being out on the road, by being in the parking lot. Right? God blessed this church with a campus that's large and it is, it is split over two stri- over, you know, on, on different sides of the street. And by working in the parking lot, you literally provide my family with that opportunity. Right? So please, please stop, you know, comparing yourself. Don't fall into the comparison trap about your calling and whether it's more or less or the same or greater or, 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 or whatever. Like, I, I, please don't ever use the phrase, oh, I just work in the nursery. Just work in the nursery? Are you kidding me? You make it possible, number one, if nothing else, for parents to get a break, but number two, for them to come in here and spend some time with God. In fact, by the way, I do want to say this. Did you know, and I didn't know this until tonight, did you know that in our nursery, every Sunday and Wednesday they have praise and worship and a lesson? I didn't know that. You know what I thought happens in the nursery, honestly? What, I, what, what happens whenever I've ever had a, the luxury or the pleasure of working in the nursery, right? You let them run around, you hope nobody dies, you feed them goldfish and juice boxes, and you w- w- hope that the preacher gets done quickly. That's what I think, thought happened in the nursery. That's what my experience was in the nursery. Right? But if you go into our nursery right now, and the only reason, and this is what's funny. So tonight as I was getting my little sheet, this is what I always preach from. I always preach from like a cardstock piece of paper that I can, because I, I, I can't do the iPad thing because I'm always afraid it's going to die on me. So <clears throat> I was in the nursery tonight because Nikki kicked me out of the office. And so I was in the nursery tonight and I was getting my notes together. And sure enough, I looked over on the wall and it, there's a bunch of pieces of paper up there that have the nursery schedule laid out. And so for every, every service, it's from, from 6 to 6.20, they're doing this, and from 6.20 to 6.40, and then on Sunday mornings from, you know, 10.45 to 11. And in that is included praise and worship and a lesson. Are you kidding me? Just work in the nursery? You should never, never be guilty of saying that. You are teaching one-and-a-half-year-olds that we praise and worship God. Are you you see why the competition and comparison, it's dangerous, right? It's, it's, it is, it's, it's dangerous. It's unfair. Um, it's a waste of your time. It's a waste of your energy. It is toxic. And if it's not competition and comparison, it's assumption. Like, you may look up here at Danny Knight, and you just think to yourself, man, he is really operating in his calling. 
I mean, he is just musically gifted. He can play. He has 14 different instruments, and he can sing every part, and he can compose, and he can arrange, and he can write, and he can all of this. I mean, my goodness, both of his you know, sons are very accomplished in the music industry. I think his son just got nominated for some award for something he wrote. I mean, all these other things. And you would assume that Danny is operating in his calling, his God's perfect will. But it's actually possible that he sits up here and he thinks to himself, I would love the opportunity to preach. He may actually feel a calling to preach. No, okay, no. I mean, I'm just saying. Go, no, go with me. Go with me on this. Come on. Come on. Help me out. But it's possible, right? And so by you assuming that he is operating in his perfect will, well, that's doing both of you a disservice, is it not? Right? By assuming that, well, then you're, you're assuming certain things about his thoughts and his feelings. And then by, by definition, you're, you're, you're feeling, you know, discouraged or dejected that you're not in your perfect will, you're not in your perfect calling, and he is. And that assumption isn't fair. So one of the, one of the things that I think this comes from or, or, or one of the things that kind of adds to this is that we live in a time where we are encouraged to think with our feelings, I want you to think about that for just a second. We live in a time where we are encouraged to think with our feelings. And I've stood up here many times and told you that any decisions you make based on your feelings, they're rarely good, if ever. Right, but what happens is, is that we feel like that person is in their perfect will and I'm not. I feel like something is missing. I feel like this isn't perfect and I feel like, uh, you know, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not maximizing my impact for the kingdom or I feel like what I'm doing doesn't matter. And so then you end up making decisions based on those feelings. And, and, and in fact, and we, we know that this is a thing because for the next... Uh, 15 months, politicians are going to use your feelings to try to get you to make a decision. They are going to try to paint a picture and get you to feel a certain way about a certain topic to get you to vote for them. Now, it's very effective. It's very effective, right? But we know that that's the time we live in, and really politicians are very good at it. Because they're going to get you to think about a certain thing and feel a certain way about that thing. And obviously, if you feel the way they feel, then you will vote for them. In fact, thinking with your feelings is kind of what started all of this in the garden. When, when the serpent came to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, um, which is like my probably my favorite scripture to teach from. It has so much in it. And almost every sermon that I give, it, 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 you can use Genesis chapter 3. But when, when the serpent comes to Eve and he says, you know, did God really say? That's one of the, 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 one of the blaring things in that, in that scripture is that Satan's like, okay, did God really say that you couldn't eat of that tree? Satan's like, here's the deal. If you, if you eat of that tree, you're going to be like God's. And you'll know power and you'll know you'll knowledge of good and evil. And you can almost sense what Eve does at that point. She's like, yeah, that's awesome. And she feels good about what he's saying. And then she acts on her feelings. It's, 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 it's been a, a deceit trick for a really long time, which of course is why the scriptures tell us that you should not make decisions based on your heart because your heart is always lying. So let me, let me make sure you heard me on this when I said, if you are working for the kingdom, you are winning. I mean, we, we could unpack, and I could, I could spend an entire other session talking about the fact that the world wants to tell you that if you're doing anything church or religion-oriented, you're losing. But I can stand here and tell you this. Scriptures are very, very clear. If you are working for the kingdom, you are winning. You have a place and you have a purpose in the kingdom. And it is not valuable for you to compare, for you to compete, for you to assume, for you to look over the shoulder of where you're serving. 
you know, to, to wonder about further satisfaction. Now, don't get me wrong. It's very clear that we can take steps, and it's very clear, you know, that we can move, you know, to another uh, type of calling or, or, excuse me, another, another step in ministry, another area in ministry, uh, move beyond that, move above that, move outside of that, okay? Um, but here's how I think we should look at it, and this is, why, this is where I got my title from. If we study and unpack the Scriptures, there's two things that we, we, can, we can say about God. He is a God of preparation, and he is a God of revelation. And, and when I say about preparation, preparation is God, through your obedience, preparing you one step at a time. When I say preparation, I mean God, through your obedience, is preparing you one step at a time at a time. In fact, if we look at David, it's a perfect example. David was anointed king, and then what did he do? He went back to the fields to work, right? He didn't go get measured for a throne or, you know, a crown or whatever and start working on his, you know, king stuff, right? His little staff or whatever. He didn't go do that. He went back to the fields, right? And, and what happens is, is I think sometimes when we look at David as the model for this calling, we, we, we go from the anointing right? When, when Samuel goes to anoint him, and then we go straight to he's king. So, you know, he was in his perfect calling. Whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's a whole lot that happened in between those two things. Preparation and revelation. So, if preparation is your obedience, through your obedience, God is preparing you one step at a time, then revelation is through your experience, God is revealing one piece at a time. So preparation is him preparing you, and each step along the way is preparing you. So if you say just working in the nursery, for example, let's, let's, let's back up a little bit. You just working in the nursery instead is preparation for who knows what type of ministry in the future. Maybe working in the ministry is preparing you to be a parent. My goodness, what better training is that? You get to see the kid and then give it back to the parents an hour later, and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm getting prepared to be my own parent, right? Or maybe, maybe after enough experience in a nursery, you can start writing programs and curricula for other nurseries to use, other resources for other nurseries to use, because you realize that this worked, or you try to implement this system in your nursery, and it's like, oh, that didn't work out, that didn't work out right. And before you know it, you're creating, you know, systems for other nurseries. Or maybe, maybe. You work in the same nursery for a really long time, and you provide family after family after family after family the opportunity to come in here and grow closer to God. And here's what you've done. If you're working the parking lot or whatever it is, what you've done is you've taken an arrow, and you've shot that arrow into the air, and we never know where those arrows will land. And we're not called to. We're not called to know every impact that we have in the kingdom, but we want to sometimes. We feel like in 2019 we should be able to measure this. We should be able to measure how many views the video gets on Facebook and how many likes it gets and how many this and how many that and how many kids we have in the nursery and how many this and how many that. But I promise you, you there is no way for you to measure or know the impact you have in the kingdom. That is way beyond your understanding, way beyond your knowledge. God knows that, Right? And so he reveals one piece at a time. That's why I was talking about the Lego thing. If you picture putting, putting together Legos, like it slowly gets revealed over the course of the construct. Now, here's the problem with preparation and revelation is they take time. And when do we want answers? Right now. Right? It is in our human nature for instant gratification. Right? So when you're told that you're going to be a preacher someday, you want to know when, you want to know how it's going to happen, and you want to know how fast it's going to get here. Like, listen, there's a reason why when babies are born, they're babies. They don't come out as 12-year-olds because you don't know how to handle a 12-year-old when you're a new parent. If you think you do, ask someone who's ever adopted a 12-year-old because they are thrown into the world of a 12-year-old and without the 11 years of experience building up to that point. That's why babies come out as babies. They need about two things when they first come out. And slowly, you get prepared, and slowly, things get revealed. In fact, um, if you are a, <laughs> if you're a new parent, or 
an old parent or not a parent, you, you, maybe you can agree with me on this, especially for the parents. If you ever said to yourself before you were a parent, my child will always or my child will never, you have eaten those words, you ate those words so fast. If you ever said, my kids will never or my kids will always, I promise you, you have eaten those words. In fact, um, a, a very close friend of mine recently became a father, and he was trying to convince me that his kids will always eat whatever he tells them. And if you're laughing, it's because you're a parent and you know, nope, it just doesn't work that way. It sounds good, and it's a great mentality to have, but um, after a long day at work, um, you just don't feel like arguing with a three-and-a-half-year-old, and you will give them peanut butter jelly again for the fifth night in a row if it means saving the energy in the house that night, right? Um, and, and so that's, that, 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 this preparation revelation, that's also the reason why you don't graduate from college and become a CEO. It just doesn't happen. You may want to become a CEO. You may think that you can be a CEO, but you can't. Right? In fact, you know, there's this kind of this scale that we look at. Like when you first get started in something, you don't even know what you don't know. Right? You're so ignorant, you don't even know what there is to know. And then all of a sudden, you grow to this point where you say, oh, wow, there actually is a lot to know, and I don't know anything. Right? And, that's, and, and then there's this point where you, you start to say, okay, I'm starting to get it a little bit, but there are still some things for me to know. That's preparation. And that's revelation, right? It is, it is typically not a good thing for somebody, to, for somebody to graduate seminary and be a pastor the following Sunday, right? That is, that, that is risky. There is a lot to learn. There's a lot to be prepared for. And there is a lot to be revealed. So instead of looking at King David, I want to look at this man by the name of Stephen. We don't know a whole lot about Stephen, but we sure can learn a lot from him. And so we go to Acts chapter 6, and I'm going to set the stage for you a little bit. So this is, if, if, if you think about Acts chapter 6, so in Acts chapter 1, of course, is when Jesus, um, he ascends to heaven, and he gives them the great commission. He says, go into the world. So that's the beginning of Acts. And so we're, we're, we're only six chapters in, so we're still very early on in the New Testament church, okay, in the first century church, right? They're, they're just starting to get out. Um, the day of Pentecost has already happened, but they're, they're starting to get out, and they're starting to preach and, and plant churches and tell people about this man named Jesus, and, and they're, they're spreading the gospel. So that sets the stage for Acts chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up uh, right in verse 1. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, so they're, they're, they're creating more and more followers of Jesus, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And I'm going to tell you who the Hellenists are. These were essentially the Greek-speaking Jews of the time. Okay, so if you think about it, right, the disciples, most of them, or at least the ones, of course, that came out of Jerusalem, they were Jewish, right? But now they're starting to spread into the Mediterranean rim, and they're going around. So now they're in the Greek areas. There's Romans. There's, there's lots of different kind of groups here. And so the Hellenists would, would be the Greeks. We'll just refer to them as the Greeks. But they're Greek Jews, and the Greek Jews are complaining to the, the Hebrews, to the, the, the guys who were like the initial, the initial disciples, the initial you know, followers of Jesus, they're kind of complaining, saying, our widows are being neglected, right? And so it's just kind of one of those things, you know, saying, hey, you know, remember I talked about the you should have, you should, you should. Well, you should be taking care of our widows. You should be taking care of our widows. So the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, so I don't think, by the way, that we should look at this in a, in a bad light. I think this is just, you know, in, in, in ministry, you have to stay in your lane, right? Neil Nolan cannot cut the grass at the church. There, we have a person who does, who cuts the grass, right? We can't expect him to cut the grass and wash the windows and run the sound and preach and work the nursery. Like, you, you have to stay in your lane. And so what's happening is, is the disciples are saying, listen, we, we cannot tend to these widows. We, we have very specific things that we have to focus on, which is studying the Scriptures, um, getting closer to God, praying, and trying to spread the gospel. So therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. 
And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And everyone said, this is a good idea. And so all this group of people said, we need to tend to these widows. What are we going to do? And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, and Pumbaa, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, uh, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So here's what happens. They found seven men. And they said, your job is to take care of the widows. Your job is to serve at the tables. See, here's the thing. There's no indication that when Stephen was born or when Stephen was 10 years old, he went to a camp or he went to an altar call when he was 12 and he was told he had a calling and he was told he had to operate in the perfect will. In fact, if you, just, if you back up, if you don't mind, go back to, I think it's verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man of, full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. He was a godly man. They looked around and they said, you're a good man. You're full of faith and you're full of Holy Spirit. We've got a job for you. And he said, okay. So verse 7, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is, this is a really powerful verse. In verse 6, they set aside seven people to serve the widows. And what happens in verse 7? The gospel is being spread. Don't miss that. It's like saying, like, we picked a handful of people to go work the nursery, and the next thing you know, lives are being changed and souls are being saved. That's how important that role was to them. So, and then verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Three verses ago, he was like one dude out of like a bunch of them, and they just picked seven of them. And now all of a sudden, he's doing great signs and wonders? Preparation and revelation. Right? Stephen wasn't out searching for his perfect calling. He wasn't paying money on the internet to try to figure out where he was supposed to go and what his perfect job was and why he wasn't having satisfaction. And I don't think he was spending his time competing. I don't think he was spending his time comparing. I don't think he was spending his time assuming. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. So essentially, these are going to be uh, Jewish people who did not like the Christians disputing with Stephen. And when they were not able to resist, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Like we can infer from just four verses that Stephen goes from a man in the crowd, goes through some preparation and some revelation, and before you know it, he's accomplishing great things for the kingdom. And as far as we know, he may have been doing all this while he was serving the widows. It could be that he was ministering unto the widows in great signs and wonders, and widows were being healed and widows were coming to, know, you know, coming to know the Lord and believing in this Jesus that they had heard about, right? Because up until, I mean, they, they, maybe they didn't, ha they didn't have men in their lives because they were widows, and so they had very little value to society at the time. And so probably, you know, they, they had very little influence. Most of the widows, I'm sure, could not read or write. So all of a sudden, they, they, you know, they were left, they were in this position where they needed somebody to share with them the gospel. And we, we, we can assume, it's safe for us to infer that that's probably what Steve, one of the things that Stephen was doing. Was that the last verse I had in chapter 6? One more. Then they secretly induced men to say. So this is what's funny. They don't like him. Remember what I said about if you're working for the kingdom, you are winning, right? If you are working for the kingdom, the world doesn't like it. The enemy doesn't like it. He will try to lie. He will try to make you compete, and he will try to make you compare, and he will try to make you assume, right? And he will secretly do things, and he will try to induce thoughts, and he will try to affect how you look at something and how you look at someone and how you view them and their ministry and their calling and their perfect will. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so essentially what happens for the rest of chapter 6 and all of verse 7 is Stephen is brought before um, the, the tribe, before the uh, high priest, to accuse him of doing blasphemous things. All right, so what did I skip ahead to? What's that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So what happens is, is in verse 6, 
the rest of verse six, or chapter six rather, and then all the way through chapter seven until we get to this verse. Stephen preaches the gospel. Listen, let me, let, me, let me just give you this. You should always be ready to preach the gospel. You should always be prepared to share the good news of Jesus with someone. You never know when you will have that platform. And sure enough, here's Stephen. Over the course of like five verses, we don't know how long this takes, he goes from a man in the crowd with no, with no notoriety. We, we still don't know where he was from or, we, you know, we, biblical scholars, I'm sure, have come up with theories and stuff like that. But he's a man in the crowd, and then all of a sudden he's serving widows, and then all of a sudden he's brought before a large group of the religious leaders at the time, and they're accusing him of preaching the gospel. Or they're, they actually make up false things about him. And here he is with a great platform to talk about Jesus, and he does. You, you, you've got to go back and just, just make a note if you can. Just read the end of chapter 6 um, and really verse chapter 7. Um, he, he starts into it about Abraham. It's a, it's a really cool thing you have to read, this entire sermon, so to speak, that he gives. And at the end of it, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. You do realize that when you try to tell someone about Jesus, some people don't like to hear it because there's accountability, there's responsibility, there's conviction in the message of Jesus. But it's funny how it says that they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and they were gnashing with teeth. Cutting to the heart is the truth. Gnashing with their teeth is their feelings coming out. Right? But he, okay, is that, but he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. So they're, they're, they're coming after him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Can we back up, though? Go back to 56. There's a really important thing happening right here. As Stephen's life is coming to an end, death is moments away. He looks up to heaven, and do you know what he sees? But he sees something very specific, and you may have missed it as I just read through it. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Everywhere else in the New Testament, what do we know about Jesus? When he's at, the, that's exactly right, he's seated at the right hand of God. I don't know about you, but I'd love for my work for the kingdom to invoke a standing ovation from the heavenly host, from Jesus himself. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That one word. How much that should invoke in us to understand that Stephen says, I saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so, go back to 58. <laughs> Interesting. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Does anybody know who Saul is? Paul. Remember what I said a few minutes ago about you never know where your arrows are going to land, right? You just launch these arrows. You just work for the kingdom, and you just launch arrows, and you never know where they're going to land. You're going to sit there and tell me that when Saul was walking along on the road one day, and this resurrected person of Jesus appeared and started talking to him, you don't think he thought back to this man named Stephen who cried out, you know, behold, I see Jesus standing at the right hand, of, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, right? Saul witnessed Stephen preach, declare the glory of God, and be stoned to death. And guess what? Saul becomes Paul, who, of course, is one of the champions of the faith. Are you kidding me? What an impact. Not only did what Stephen do, you know, like I said, bring out the standing ovation from Jesus, like 
He influenced Paul. Let's be serious. There's no question that he influenced Paul. Paul was there. Uh, do I have 59? Did we go to 59? And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a... <laughs> This is so good. This is so good. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Does, can anybody think of a time when they were being crucified or killed for something and they said, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do? Man, that's powerful. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which uh, fell asleep is a, is a common phrase used you know, for dying. What a powerful, powerful illustration for just, you know, being, being found faithful. You know, it's one of my favorite phrases is the, the three-word phrase, be found faithful. So here's Stephen, right, just this guy who's in the group, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in. Let's do this Jesus thing. Let's, let's help other people. And they say, hey, listen, we need about seven volunteers to go and serve the widows. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. What do you need me to do, right? And less than two chapters later, preaching the gospel, declaring the glory of God. Would you stand with me? So what I want to do is I, I, I want you to kind of just kind of gather together with the people that are near you, you know what I'm saying, hold hands, you know, with your, your family members, your friends, um, as we, we, we just kind of, kind, of, kind of meditate, you know, kind of, kind of settle in on, on this thing that we've talked about with, with your calling. You know, there might be some of you that have thought about your calling and you're confused about your calling or you're not sure or and maybe tonight I created this new thing for you to think about in your calling and of course that wasn't my intent. My, my intent is to, is to, you know, alleviate some of this pressure, this stress and this anxiety that we might feel sometimes about working for the kingdom and what are we doing and how do I do it and is it right and is it the most and is it the best and am I better or worse? Am I doing it right? I mean, how do I get on YouTube? How do I get on Facebook? You know, all, all that stuff. And I, I just want... I want you to understand that God doesn't want that for you. That's not in his nature. That's not in his nature for you to be confused and for you to be carrying a burden. It's in his nature to prepare you, to reveal to you, to take time and show you these things, right? For you to understand that maybe you're just launching arrows into the world and you just never know where they're going to land. So would you do me a favor and just, just bow your heads, close your eyes, pray with the person next to you, lay your hand on them, hold their hands. You don't know what they're dealing with. You don't know if they've got a, a child who's dealing with this thing. You don't know what the battles they've been through. You don't know the, 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 the chapters in ministry that they've walked through. Maybe they've been to church after church and every time they go to a different church, somebody hurts them or somebody hurts their feelings or somebody tells them that they're in the wrong spot or they're serving in the wrong area of the church or, 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 or somebody had the arrogance to, to, to call them out on their calling or tell them how they were wrong or what they should have done, you know, just, just pray with that person next to you. Just, just for the next 60 seconds, just pray with them about, about this.